think it is. Pink. Pink beach. Well, indeed, good morning. We are glad that uh, you're together with the Awakening family. And more important than being together with the Awakening family, that you're here to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has for us today. My name is Terry, and if you are new, we're glad to have you here today. I know there's important wedding celebrations this afternoon and those kinds of things, so we are glad to have everybody join together. Um, will you pray with me? Lord, in this moment, I ask that through your Holy Spirit, whom you promised wherever two or three are gathered, that you would be in our midst, that through your Holy Spirit, you would bring a right sizing of your word to our hearts and lives today. Lord, as we sang, we know that you came to bring us freedom and forgiveness through your grace. And I pray, God, today that your grace would abound richly in all ways at all times. Or maybe an individual, or maybe a large sector of people today. I know not what your spirit does. But Lord, may you speak, may you bring encouragement, and may you bring freedom through your name and through your word. Amen. Well, we've been in a series in the book of Joshua called The Crossing. And this series has been extended because we've not been able to do our crossing yet to relocate to our new facility. And most of you should have gotten a letter from me this last week, so continue to pray as we seek through uh, the opportunities at hand, but we're going to get there. And if you didn't get that letter, there's a few copies in the back, so it'll give you an update. I won't belabor that point. But um, I want you to know that God is always at work in whatever location we are, and I believe that today, as we pray, that there's a good work in your heart, as God has done a good work in my heart this week through the story that we're going to be looking at in the book of Joshua concerning the crossing. You know, the story's told of... Uh, uh, a, a wife who went on vacation in Europe, and she called back to her husband to find out if everything was okay. And she said, how's my cat doing? And he said, dead. She goes, what? Well, honey, that's, that's a terrible thing. Well, you could have said it in a different kind of way. You were just blunt. It, 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 like, well, what do you mean? What, what have I done? She said, well, you could have said something like, you know, he's up on the roof. And then when I got to Paris, you could have said, well, he's uh, looking a little um, uh, shaky. And then when I got to London, you could have said that the cat was sick. And then when I got to New York, you could have said the cat was at the vet. And then you could have, you know, when I got home, you could have said that the cat died. You could have let me down and, and, and then the flow of thought. He goes, oh. He says, okay, I... I'm not really used to that kind of protocol, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try to do better next time. And she said, okay, so how's my mom doing? And he goes, uh, she's on the roof. <laughs> this is one of those talks where I want to try to let you down a little bit easier, but the reality is I'm pretty going to be pretty blunt and straightforward because that's what scripture is, and it's hard to hide uh, truth on such a sensitive subject matter. Today, I have good news for you, but to get to the good news, we've got to investigate some of the bad news. If there's not bad news, then there is no good news, and so I'm going to present to you up front 
that there is death. And the death has to do with what's inside of us. And um, we are going to look at Joshua chapter 7. And so if you turn there for me, whether in your scriptures or on your uh, media device, the uh, stories that we're unpacking in Joshua, I don't know, is my little clicker working here? There we go. Come from the Israelites entering the promised land that God had for them. Moses had died. Joshua was raised up. Joshua had a million plus people on the west side, I mean the east side of the Jordan River. And God had promised them that they would cross the Jordan River and seize and take hold of the promised land. And we saw in the first part of Joshua that God did that. He parted the water in the Jordan River just like he parted the Red Sea for the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. They walked across on dry ground and they took occupancy of the promised land. But to take occupancy of the promised land, you got to sort of do some battles with that which was in the land. And so last week we looked at Jericho, and Jericho was a very fortified city, and God had them do a strange thing, marched around Jericho one time for six straight days, and then on the seventh day they marched around it seven times, and then the trumpet shouted, and they gave a festival shout, and the walls came tumbling down, and they went up and in, and they seized the city of Jericho which was a significant key stronghold in order to be able to take occupancy of the promised land. So they're all riding on a high. They're pretty excited and they're uh, believing a lot in their Yahweh God. Their one true God is with them and they are going to take possession of the whole promised land. And so then strategically, Joshua steps back and decides, well, what would be next? And so he says, I think I'll go to the city of Ai. Now it's spelled A-I, but you pronounce it Ai. Now, I was a much smaller city. It wasn't fortified. And Joshua did the same thing. He sent some spies out ahead to check it out and see what was going to be happening with it. And so those spies came back, and we pick up the story then in Joshua 2. Now, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, hey, no problem. Not all the army will have to go up against I. Send two or 3,000 men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for a few people live there. So their army was actually about 40,000, and that's what they used to be able to take down Jericho. So they went to the little town of Ai, and the spies came back, just like the spies had come back from Jericho, trying to give encouragement in the camp, and said, we've got this one, no problem, just two or 3,000, we're pretty good on this one. The people are weak, and and they they know that we're coming. So about 3,000 went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Now, this was not only a shocking military defeat. It was a crushing psychological defeat. They had been on a run. They felt God was with them. And they got their behinds whipped at eye. It's like, what's going on? How in the world could this happen? What would you do? You ever been in those kinds of positions in your life? Things are going well. And then all of a sudden, it takes a turn 
and there's some crushing blows one after another. Yeah, now, yay, nay, as to why that turns happened in your life, and we can talk about one reason for that this morning, as is true of the city uh, issue at I, but there is a psychological thing that happens to you when things have been going good, and then there's a turn, and you start to lose confidence. You start to lose confidence in yourself. You start to lose confidence maybe in, in your skill sets or, or, or how you're financially planning life. You start to lose confidence in those you thought were in good relationship around you. And you start losing confidence maybe in God. This was a crushing, not only military defeat, it was a crushing psychological defeat to the Israelites. Now, you got to remember, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, so they went in and they took occupancy of that, so they're in Jericho and they're in Gilgal a little bit, but they're in foreign territory, and they don't have a fortified city wall around them. And so that anxiousness of the reality of being laid bare before enemies was daunting to them. And so I don't think it's an overstatement when it says the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Anybody in that condition this morning? You're living in a place of fear. Your heart is melted. And maybe you're shedding tears that are like a flow of water from your heart. So, what would you do? Joshua's a young point leader. Remember, he's only a few weeks in, if you will, from Moses passing away. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. So Joshua went, ark of the Lord is where the presence of the Lord was understood to be. He fell face down. And he didn't just do it for a few moments or an hour or two, the whole day. In evening, he was there on his face, trying to figure out what happened, what did I do uh, wrong, where is this? And his heart began to do like we do a lot, turn back towards God, wondering if God was inattentive to this whole situation. And so it's not on your screen, but let me read to you the heart of Joshua in this crushing moment. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Now, does that sound familiar? When they came out of Egypt, God had done this tremendous miracle, and they end up in Egypt, and and the Israelites start doing what? Complaining. Oh, my goodness. You just brought us out of Egypt to have us die here in the wilderness. Same kind of things, coming back around. Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out your name from the earth. What then will you do 
for your own great name. Now, there's some things interesting that he's doing there, right? He's doing the rightful thing on his face, crying out to God, what's gone wrong? What's, what's wrong with my life? Why are these terrible things happening? Not only to my life, but my extended family, the Israelites, right? It would have been best for us not to have gone that turf. Got a lot of regrets in life sometimes, and you, you hit a hard way. Well, I just shouldn't have done that. I should have stayed back in some other kind of condition of life. So he throws that out to God. And you're wondering, like, what's God thinking here? I was like, okay, Joshua, what's, what's happening down there? All right, jo- Joshua was crying out to God on his face, but God knew what was happening. And then Joshua does this unique thing. Hey, God, this is going to be your bad. This is on you. you got egg on your face here, man. I can't believe your name is going to be dishonored. We, we conquer Jericho, then we go up to Ai, and we get slaughtered by a, a, a tiny little army of people. And then, and then now look at us. You, you, you better get your act together, God, because if you don't get your act together, this isn't going to go down well, and you're going to be looking pretty bad. Now, those weren't the exact words of Joshua, but they've been your words and my words at time, right? So he's complaining to God about God's inattentiveness now how do you think god takes this well the lord said to joshua stand up stand up what are you doing down on your face who that does not sound like a good intro from god right you ever done that to your kids get in here i'm going to talk to you we're going to have to deal with the situation right It's like, uh uh-oh, God's calling out Joshua. Get up off your face. Come in here. We're going to talk this. Stand up. Be a man about it, right? You see, God, it wasn't because his inattentiveness, inattentiveness. It was because of something else that had happened, and it didn't have anything to do with him. He says, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. Maybe your next question is like, all right, God, what what do you mean? Joshua was clueless at this moment. You've got to understand that. He's trying to figure it out. He's trying to petition before God. He's trying to be a good leader, right? He's a strong warrior kind of leader. And God's calling him out, and then he calls him out, and he says, here's the deal. It's not anything to do with my inattentiveness. It has to do with your sin. And he's like, what's sin? What, what, what do you mean? What, what, what happened? What's going on? Well, if you recall in Jericho, and I paused for a moment last week and made sure we shared these verses. Right before they were ready to take the walls, Right? Right before, he says, you know, hey, it's seven times around a day, and blow the horns, and we're going to shout, and the walls are going to come tumbling down. Right before he did that, right before all the action would take place, when the people would be on the move, going into the city, he gave them a specific command. And you're like, from last week, you're like, why did you do that, man? This is a great moment to go. And he gave them one last coaching instruction. It was in Joshua 6, 18, if you remember this. Right before they went in to take the walls of Jericho, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. 
Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Do you remember that statement? He's like, here's the deal. I'm going to give you the promised land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to be able to eat of its produce. You're going to be able to have a place of your very own. I'm going to protect you from enemies. And, but here's the deal. There are certain things that are sacred, that are devoted things, that are to be kept unto me. Because God's greedy? No, but because God's to be honored. And God would rightfully use those things in the place they needed to be used rather than the people taking them and being led astray by materialism or whatever it may be. So verse 12 of Joshua 7 then, back in our story with I. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. So in this moment, Joshua realizes that there's sin in the camp. You ever heard that phrase? That there's sin in the camp? It comes from this story. So, what's the deal with God? Is he really... Jealous for all that silver and gold and things? Well, God's not as much interested in the material things as much as he was interested in their hearts. Because, you see, our heart is the aspect of us that sins and wants to not follow God. And God had given a specific command. But... This whole idea of God being bothered, being furious, that things were taken from him, gold, silver, iron. Does it remind you of any other passage in Scripture where God got really upset concerning things of monetary value? It reminds me of the verse... In Malachi, will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. In essence, that's what God's upset about. And so the instructions give, go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate themselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. The devoted things is what was taken of the plunder. Go find it and remove it. For you have robbed God of what he said belonged to him. Well, how, how do we do that, God? Well, you rob me in multiplicity of ways. Sometimes you rob me with your time. 
You rob me with your talents. And sometimes you rob me with resources that I've given to be devoted to me. Now, I don't know about you, and this isn't some big message on tithing and offerings. That's actually more expansive than that. But what is it that you have in your possession that's not rightfully yours, that was supposed to be devoted to God? You know, the whole aspect of the tithe, which is 10% of that which God has entrusted to us that we make with our monetary means. 10% off the top, yes, before taxes. You know, there's just something about the tithe. It's the historical biblical standard that God's placed out there. When you move into the New Testament, it's even beyond the tithe because the offerings are added to the tithes, that understanding. And God's not legalistic with this, and we shouldn't be legalistic with it in a local church setting or in our discipleship. But I tell you what, God's serious when it comes to us keeping things that are supposed to be devoted to him. And so I just simply ask you that question. Could it be that there is sin in the camp in your life, in our life as a body, as it relates to the devoted things that are to be given to God? Same way with your time. God's given you all this time, given all the time to me. And he says, how are you going to order your days? How are you going to rightfully measure where you invest the hours that I keep your heart beating? The devoted things. What are the devoted things? And those devoted things are to be consecrated back to the Lord. They're not to be hoarded and taken. Now, what Joshua do? Joshua's got a million people, so he's got a problem. And so what he does is he does this uh, scheme of taking all 12 tribes of the Israelites, million-some people, he breaks them down tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, and then person by person. We're going to find out where the sin in the camp came from. And so it says in Joshua 7.18 that Joshua had his family come forward man by man and, and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was chosen. How did we get to this point where the man who did the problem was Achan? It was because they brought him in. Here's the tribe. Can you see, hey, all the 12 tribes. And it's like, I'm going to dismiss all the tribes except Judah. Now, if you're in the other 11, you're going, boy, man, I'm feeling bad. I'm feeling better. There's the tribe of Judah, who God would bless through ultimately for the Messiah someday. And so he's concerned about this tribe. And then the Zerites, clan by clan, came. And it's like, I want this clan here. That's extended family. Okay? The rest can go. And then the sovereign spirit led Joshua to discern that it was the family of Zimri. And then the family of Zimri standing there. Now, you've got to picture yourself in this because otherwise it's just, hey, I'm going to sort of read in the Bible, oh, yeah, this and that. Think in terms of you being called before the presence of God concerning sin in the camp or what's going on. Say the sin that's in our nation, right? Large groups of people, the sin that's in the valley. Oh, my gosh. What, what, I, me? What, what? I don't know who the problem is. But sector by sector by sector, family by family by family, and then here's the person, and the person was Achan. You ever heard the name Achan? I really want to encourage you to name your kid Achan. All right? Achan was the one that was pointed out. Now, we live in a very individualistic culture, right? Rugged individualism, that's America. 
But you need to understand this. If you climb into the Bible and try to get the Bible's worldview, it's not so much individuals as communities, peoples. And the first verse in chapter 7, I didn't read because I want to go back to it right now. The first verse said this in the chapter we're in today, but the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Camri, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. I've got a question. God, why do you put the word Israel in there rather than Achan? But it was Achan who was unfaithful. Lord, your anger should burn against Achan. No. You're thinking American. In God's eyes, humanity, his people he called out, it's community. We don't think that way. And so it was Achan who sinned and took the devoted things, but it was Israel who God's anger was towards. Those 36 people that died at I, I mean, if I were their family members, I'd be pretty ticked at Achan. I go, Achan, look what you did. Because what you did, God wasn't with us. And then my brother, my son, got killed because of you. Is that where the chapter turns? No. It keeps it with the community. It's an us. We live in such a divisive culture today. And we call out people. It's their problem, right? Well, we need to have ownership. It's our problem. There is evil in America. But we don't want to talk about sin in America. And we don't want to talk about sin in our own camp, in our own clan. We have to own up to the fact that in God's eyes, when he pulls back, he may not be pulling back because of you. It may be a part of the community that you're with. And you're going to have to deal with that. I was watching some football games yesterday. It was a beautiful win by Purdue over Ohio State. usually doesn't happen with team football teams in Indiana. But um, sometimes they're marching down the field, and they even make a great play, and they throw a flag. And you know what's coming. They throw the flag, and they call holding. Now, holding's a terrible penalty. Because if you're holding somebody rather than just trying to block them, you get penalized 10 yards and almost effectively not only kills the yardage you got, but it puts you back 10 yards. You're sort of done for that run unless you really come up with a big play. And some of the best players do holding at the most inopportune times. If I'm on the rest of the line or I'm the quarterback who just threw the pass or the running back who scurried through and just made a great dash and the flag goes, he's got the penalty, I would be pretty ticked at the guy that did the holding call. But you usually don't see players going up to the guy who did holding and jaw him out going, I can't believe you did that. You help. Look, we lost this. Like, no, we're team. We're good. We're back. My bad. We're good. We're team. I think the church needs to operate more like team rather than individualism as it relates to how we play life out. 
Our wins are not because, oh man, that person knocked that down, or I saw that really great act of love. It's us as a body that does it. And when, when we stay away from being obedient to God with the devoted things, it's an us kind of deal. Now what inside of us, we, we, we like to pers- place personal blame. But God, when he deals with his bodies of people, and when his bodies of people, hang with me on this, because this is really important in light of where we're at as a church. When his bodies of people are called, to move from one place to another place or to engage a certain particular mission or to uphold certain values and and messages that he's called them to uphold or to minister to a, a body of people. He's calling them to do that as a whole. And if we have sin in the camp, then the whole is hurt. And so as we prepare ourselves to move to a prominent place, to be able to champion God's purposes in this valley, I rightfully need to tell you, not that the cat's on the roof, or the cat's not feeling well, or the cat's at the vet. If the cat is dead, we need to own it. I have nothing in mind at this moment, so don't get anxious with me. I just need to speak to you on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're about doing in moving from this small location, not all that large of a body of people, but yes, engaged, and God's brought us tremendous distances, and we've seen transformed lives over the year. What we're getting ready to do and move into this new location is way beyond anything of us as a body, as individuals. And maybe, just maybe, some of the delay that God's put into our life this fall. I've had to ask myself this question. I've had to ask myself this question even as a leader in my own personal life. Could it be because there's sin in the camp and there's some things that need to be righted in order for God to bless us moving forward? Now, that is a heavy word. And if you wanted me to go slower with it, then maybe I could have, but we only have so many minutes on a Sunday morning. Is there something you're doing or withholding from God in your life that's affecting the whole camp? That's a hard word. I've had to ask that. Are you withholding something from God that he said to give? Are you just on the outskirts when God said you need to be in the mainstream of what I'm doing, ministering for your kingdom? Maybe it's some act of service. Maybe it's taking initiative on some ministry. The elders this week we met, and we had the beautiful opportunity to unpack a, uh, a proposal that was given by um, some people in the church concerning a prayer and freedom ministry. And it was just like so beautiful to get that a few weeks ago. It's like, Where's the initiative come from? I don't know. It's up to you guys, but this is what God's impressed upon our heart. Those individuals take an initiative because God had laid them. And maybe it's something you're holding back that God's told you that we need to be doing as a body. So it may not have to do with devoted things like tithes and offerings or your, 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 your time or something. It may have to do with initiative or horsepower. We have to all be in on this. And when we go from the east side to the west side of the Jordan, once we get there, we need to stay pure in our devotion to Him. 
it's not going to be about us. It's going to be about lost, broken lives. People that are far from God or Christians that have become disoriented and not grown to be all that God's called them to be. We have a mission that we are on. And I, in some sense, as a Joshua, can find myself face on the ground, complaining to God, and God says, Carrie, get up, exhort the people concerning their own personal lives, and let's do away with the carnalistic hearts that we have that are double-minded, that are straying after our own initiatives or building our own little kingdoms. And may you get consumed as a people with building the kingdom of God first. Challenge the people to be devoted to me in every aspect. So this whole thing of consecrating is just not a nice passing term. We must consecrate ourselves, not just one time, but every week, Lord, to be devoted to this. Consecrate yourselves, Joshua said right before they crossed the Jordan. He says, because tomorrow God is going to do amazing things among you. He gave that message. I'm sure Achan probably consecrated himself. He got himself cleaned up, ready to go. But when he was in the midst of the situation in Jericho, he allowed his heart, that Jeremiah says is deceitfully corrupt and evil above all things, he allowed his broken sinful heart to pull him in a direction that pulled the whole camp down. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder of Jericho a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels, of silver, and a weighted bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. It's a pretty dramatic moment. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver buried a little bit further underneath. They took the things from the tent. They brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. It wasn't Joshua they spread them out before. It was before the Lord. Yahweh, God who has been with us to, to seize the opportunity beforehand. Here it is. We have found it. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. That's how sin in the camp was dealt with 
in the Old Testament. I'm here to give you good news today. God's provided another way for sin to be dealt with. Whether it's sin in your life or sin in our camp. How sin is dealt with today is through that which we sang about. The beautiful, wonderful, amazing grace of God. Now you see when our concept of God comes to a challenge in these kinds of stories, you need to understand that the most supreme thing about God is his holiness. And that holiness is not uh, a temper that flies off the handle. It's a holiness for everything good and right. When you watch your television screens and you see news items that break your heart and you wonder why is there this evil, why is there this brokenness in our world, God's heart grieves too. You have a heart that grieves when things are not right. If you've been done wrong by an employee or been done wrong by a family member, it breaks your heart and you wish there would be rightness, justice done on that behalf. You are made in the image of God. We want things to be right. And so God's holiness, His justice is supreme above all things. And in His eternal world that we will get to participate in, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, all the wrongs will be made right. He will wipe every tear from our eye and we will have an eternity that's truly pure justice. We won't need a supreme court because God is supreme justice and He will have dealt with everything righteously and rightly. There's something that longs for us. Well, in the heart of God, is His purity and His holiness. That supersedes even love for broken, fallen, sinful creatures. That's hard for us to grab a hold of because the value we have in our world today, well, that's not being very nice, God. Why did those people do that to Achan? Maybe he was sorry. Couldn't you just let him you know, ask for forgiveness and maybe work it out with you know, some community service or something? No, God was given a true testament to his Israelites. You're going to take hold of possession of the promised land, all that God has for you in your personal life, your family, a marriage, new job situation. If you want all God's purpose in that, then you need to make sure that the devoted things are left unto him and that you honor and worship him. Because there's no way the Israelites could have survived then. And I'll say it, there's no way Israel can survive today in its current predicament without the one true God, Lord Yahweh, honored above all things. Sin in the camp. Thank God he's done something about it. I put up a list of seven deadly sins here because maybe your sin wasn't Achan's sin. The seven deadly sins, pride, envy, gluttony, lust, anger, greed, sloth, is one list some people come up with that are sort of the heavy duties. And so as you do some soul searching this week on your own, maybe you could just walk through this list of sins to see if there's sin in your own camp. Pride and excessive belief in one's abilities, not recognizing God's grace. Envy, desires for others' traits, status, abilities, or situation. Gluttony, an inordinate desire to consume more than one requires. Lust, inordinate craving for the pleasures of the body. Anger, one who spurns love and opts instead for rage. Greed, desire for material wealth or gain. Sloth, avoidance of physical or even spiritual work. 
The Seven Deadly Sins can hit pretty hard. It's a heavy series. I'm not going to be going into a series on the seven deadly sins. We'll just capsulize it all here today and just ask ourselves before God, is there sin in the camp? Could have used the Ten Commandments. Could have used some other lists of scriptures of Paul. But you know what? It's really not about the sin. As D.K. Chesterton once said, it's not the angle at which you fall, but the angle at which you stand straight that's important. All of us, Scripture says, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it's not about going around and beating one another. Was it you? Was it you? Did you have the holding penalty or what's going on in here? No. Just take stock in your own life. Where are you at this morning? Because if each of us attend to our own life concerning the areas of sin, then God's blessing will be upon the body at large. And so, Carrie, which of those in that list are you prone to fall to? Which of those are escapist sins that you're toying with right now in your life, Carrie? It's a good list. It's a healthy soul exercise to go through. And then when you identify, when you identify the sin or the sin areas or things you're prone to falling into, then you need to immediately turn your heart to how to stand straight because you stand straight in only one way, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. The story's told. We're heading into Christmas season, right? An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said in Matthew 1. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he will be, he will have, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Joshua. That's Jesus. Jesus is the same name as Joshua in the Old Testament, for he will save his people from their sins. So God had a plan in the midst of the brokenness. So fast forward many years from the sin of Achan. God says, I got you. I'm going to deal with this. And so God sent his son, Jesus Christ. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin because he was born sinless, born of the Virgin Mary. He lived his whole 33 years of life without sinning. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God took the sin of the world, your sin, my sin, past, present, and future, placed it on Jesus. Jesus went. He died on a cross. Satan has no rights to a perfect being. Jesus rose from the grave and he broke the power of Satan. But Jesus died as a substitutionary atonement, an at-one-ment that we could have with God. But only if we are found in Him. I've given you the illustration before. What does it mean to be in Christ? This card that's in my Bible, this card's separate from the Bible. But if I take the card and I place it in the Bible, then wherever the Bible goes, that's where the card goes. If I find myself in Christ, then what Christ did on the cross through his substitutionary atonement, I am a part of that. And it is through what Christ did, through his shed blood, his broken body, the power of his resurrection. If I am found in him, then I have the righteousness of God. And there is no condemnation over all the sin that he carried away and separated as far as the east is from the west and buried in the deepest ocean. That's 
God's grace. So now, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. God sent His own Son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. That's the good news I wanted to get you to. But there's no good news unless you deal with the reality of the bad news. And the bad news is that we're sinners in desperate need of a Savior. The bad news is there's always sin in the camp. But that sin in the camp can be dealt with as we corporately as well as individually seek to be covered by the blood the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all righteousness. You know why we're called to confess? Because when you confess, it's not that God finally concedes to say, I'm going to forgive your sin now. He has forgiven your sin, past, present, and future. If you are in Christ, then you are in His righteousness. And every morning you get up, and though you may feel weak, broken, and sinful, you have His righteousness. You're clothed in His beauty and His glory. God looks at you and says, I see Jesus in you. Welcome into my eternal rest. We are called to confess, not because God needs to act, but because it causes us to do what Achan did when he says, it's me, here's the stuff, here's what it is. Now his life was taken from him, but normally if somebody confesses, you extend forgiveness and you come back into a rightful relationship. If you need to confess sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all righteousness because the work that he did on the cross is for past, present, and future. You know, I found this interesting verse talking about the devoted things. Luke 12, 15, Jesus himself said to them, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of the possessions. Too bad Jesus wasn't around when they went into the walls of Jericho and he could have told Achan when he looked over and saw that stuff he wanted. He could have told him, Watch out, Achan. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Your life does not consist of the abundance of your possessions. It may not be the issue of greed. It may be one of the other sins or others not even mentioned here today. If you had to fill into those blanks, what would Jesus need to say to you right now in your life? Carrie, Carrie, hey, hey, you. Bill, Bob, Julie, Sarah, hey, watch out. Be on your guard against fill in the blank. Because life does not consist in fill in the blank, whatever you think that's holding for you. I close with these three questions. I'm going to ask the band to come up. I want to give you some time with your Jesus. The one who came to set you free from the control of sin, the one who gave his life so your sins could be forgiven. And with this time with Jesus, just walk through these three questions. The first, is there any unconfessed sin in my life? And confession is simply telling God, you did the thing he saw you do anyway. 
Who do you think you're fooling? Number two, are there any unresolved conflicts in my world? If so, maybe what you need to do this afternoon is just go and make things right. Then come back and work things out with God. And number three, and it may seem like a little bit of a stretch for what we've talked about today, but I see what Satan does in burdening people down and destroying their lives and getting them to live in a sense to live in a sense not only guilt but uh, uh, and despair, but to live in a sense of oppression in their life. And number three is this: Are there any unsurrendered worries in my life? Worry is a noose on the neck and a distraction of the mind. So, if you guys wouldn't mind, just play instrumentally for.